0: 1 Thessalonians is where I want to jump off tonight. See, there you go again, this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want us to read verses 23 to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23 says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet one another with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Today I want to consider the topic of blameless before God. You know, I've, I've been preaching through this passage, um, and it's been a little while, but I started it at uh, Calvary's Fall Fantasia, and uh, the, the title was uh, a War of Wills. The War of Wills. And in the preceding verses, in verse 18, it specifically says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He's not just talking about giving of thanks, which that is the direct context. He's talking about all of those commands that he gives right there. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from the all appearance of evil. And I described the fact that we are in this war in ourselves, between ourselves, between our natural man and the Spirit of God to do God's will or our will. And specifically, this is a summary, one of the places where the Bible specifically reveals to us God's will for our lives. And we just talked about a lot of practical applications of each one of those commands, maybe some ways that they apply to our lives. And we talked a little, mostly just about practically... Um, the things listed here. But I want us to consider today the broader picture of the war. What's the entire purpose of doing God's will? No, we know, we all know we're supposed to do it. Okay. But what's the result of it? We know from history that war is hard. War is unfair. But ultimately war is decisive. Somebody wins, and somebody loses. When we think of war, we think of men who fought for freedom, not knowing whether they would live another week, another day, another hour, or another minute, and not even knowing if freedom would prevail. Those guys in the trenches, especially World War I, that's the most brutal war Let's let's all sit down in a hole in the ground. Every time it rains, all the water runs down to where you're standing. Every time there's a gas attack, it all flows down into your trench. And when we attack the enemy, we're just going to go up over the top and run across this piece of open ground. And guess what? The whole time they had no idea if they would win or lose. What was at stake? Freedom was at stake. We consider, we can think of The women that sacrificed, you know, there were children that were raised during that time. Many of the hardships that they went through trying to feed their families went on short rations for the war effort. Think of them in the the factories, you know, a lot of the women went went to the factories to, to create the machinery and things. And the turmoil of mind that they would have, those that had husbands or sons or brothers that were in the war not knowing if they'd return and think of what they would have had at stake if freedom didn't prevail being subjugated to a brutal tyranny but those men and women didn't shrink from their duty they did not allow the fear of the future to weaken their resolve they fought they did their part and we know that the ultimate was victory in World War One and World War II and wherever the United States has fought. There's been a flag for freedom. And those men and women who, who sacrificed, we hold those in honor, especially for those who gave their last full measure of devotion for freedom. And that is a high goal. That is a great cause. But there is a cause that's greater. And there is a war raging in the world even now that for victory is worth every cost, that for victory is worth every sacrifice, and that for victory is worth dying. And that is the cause of humanity in the presence of deity being found blameless. In our passage, it says, I pray God your whole spirit and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verse made me think of an example in the Old Testament You might know him, a guy by the name of Job. And if you recall in Job 1.1, it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the same man feared. He feared God and eschewed evil. I mean, if you think about Job's life and how God went, or Satan went to God, and God said, "We you considered my servant Job? How he's an upright man and perfect in all the in all the earth. And Satan says, It's fake. It's not real. You've given him all these things. He said, If I if I took all those things away from him, you'd see. Who Job really is. And you know the story. God said, okay, you can take everything he has. You can take his livelihood, you can take his children, you can take his health, but you can't take his life. Job lost everything. But in the end of the story, We know that Job learned more about who God was. But Job, we would say at the end of the story, he had to get some things right. But Job was blameless in the end. He wasn't perfect. He didn't do everything right. He had to learn some lessons through that. But Job was an example of someone that lived his life in such a way. He went through hardships that Most of us will never endure. On so many levels, most of us will not endure that many hardships, especially all at one time. And yet he was blameless. Why? Because the cause. We want to please God. And how deep is the thought that humanity, broken humanity, can be blameless in the sight of God. With all of our sin, with our wicked heart, we can be found blameless. And so I want us to consider several things in this passage in the context of the war of wills. And the first thing I want us to consider is the work of sanctification. Look there in the beginning of verse 23. The very God of peace sanctify you holy. The work of sanctification is not ours. The work of justification is not ours. Justification is that act whereby God declares us to be righteous. It's just as if we had never sinned. It's when we repent, turn from our sin, and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one's obvious. Okay? We all know we, can, we cannot earn our way to heaven. That comes from Christ. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We all know those verses. But a little more subtle is this idea of sanctification. I think sometimes we get the idea that it is all of us. And at the end of the day, we do make decisions to do God's will or not. But the work is His. It says that the very God of peace sanctify you. It's God's work. God will do it in you. It is of God. It is the Holy Spirit that works in your heart to guide you into all truth. Guess what, guys? We cannot rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, quench not the Spirit by ourselves. How do you know that? Can an unsaved person do it? No. What's the difference? The Holy Spirit that dwells within us. When we have the Holy Spirit, He's the one that reminds us of these things. He points out in in the situations of life, whenever we are tempted not to rejoice evermore because of some hardship, or maybe something didn't go well at work, or somebody said something mean to us, and I want to stop rejoicing now because my poor feelings. Guess what happens? The Holy Spirit says, hey, it's not right. Rejoice evermore. He reminds us of these things. On my way to work, I talked about this when we talked about the war of Wills. On my way to work, that's my time to pray. And guess what happens every time I'm on my way to work? The Holy Spirit says, Hey, it's time to pray. We don't see the Spirit, and you may oh that's weird. I mean, we all know that's that's how it works. The Holy Spirit works in our hearts and brings these things to mind. He convicts us. And notice it says, so it's, it's God's work. Point number two. It brings us peace. This work of God brings us peace. It says, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. When you're doing God's will and not your will, the result of that is peace. It's not inner turmoil. Guess what happens when you have to make decisions on your own and you have to figure out, oh, this, what, I don't know, is this right or is this wrong? And you're trying to test the waters. You see all these moral conundrums, like right? all these, you know, situation comedies and stuff where they're like, oh, I'm not sure if this is right. And, and we all, and it's supposed to be funny and everything and everybody laughs. And they think of all this terrible conundrum and I can't figure out what's right and, and, and what's wrong. And so they have this inner turmoil and all of this. If they just did God's will, they'd be at peace within themselves. Peace comes from God. Peace comes from doing God's will because that is what's right. You don't have to figure it out. He gives it to us. So it's God's work. The result of that work is peace. The very God of peace will sanctify you wholly in every area. You notice when the Bible lists the fruit of the Spirit, that's another uh, point in which you could say, this is the will of God, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. That is the will of God for His children. Notice He doesn't say, the fruits of the Spirit are. The fruit of the Spirit is. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, you know, this new son that I have or this new daughter that I have. I just want them to do the baby step plan. I just want them to work on love this week and for the rest of their life. And I'm going to work on that until they get that down. And then I'm going to move over here to long suffering. And And then I'm going to work. No. All of them. He works in our hearts wholly. He's interested in every aspect. He's interested in every virtue. Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. He doesn't say think on one at a time. Think on all of them. Focus on all of them. Oh, it's too much. I can't handle it. No, you can't. But you have the earnest of the Spirit dwelling in your heart, and He guides you into all truth. It's His work. It's God's work in us. The work of sanctification. Point number two. The result of this work of sanctification and that's found in verse, in the end of verse twenty-three. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of sanctification, the goal of it, the whole purpose for denying yourself, the whole purpose for doing God's will and rejecting yours. So that we can be found blameless before God. There's no greater cause than that. I think for myself growing up, you get this idea of the the uh clergy, or the clergy and the laity, right? And so we have pastors. They have to do what's right and follow God's will. And everyone else, like we can just kind of goof off the rest of the week and come to church when it's time. And so when we read passages like 2 Timothy 3 or 1 Timothy 3, where the, pa- the pastor qualifications. I think it's 2 Timothy, right? It's 1 Timothy. Bradley's help me out. 1 Timothy 3, where he talks about a bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. And all growing up, you know, I always thought, you know, the pastor has to be blameless. Yes, okay, he does. Really, he does. The Bible says so. A bishop must be blameless. I never really grasped the concept. We're all supposed to be blameless. That's what he says. It's It's not them and us. It's not the clergy versus the laity. No, we're all to be doing God's will for the glory of God so that we could be blameless before God. We all know once we're saved, we have a home that's eternal in the heavenlies. We're as sure as going to heaven as we're already there. one day we're going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and we're going to receive those things done in our body. 1 Corinthians 5. Whether they be good, whether they be bad. He's going to judge those things whether they were wood, hay, and stubble or whether they were gold, silver, and precious stones. But here in this life, we can be blameless before God. When we crucify the old man, Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 3. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I think Paul understood the cause. He crucified his flesh. He, he was doing God's will. He was being sanctified day by day. That he might be blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's three aspects of that. And again, Jesus is not God is not just worried about one aspect. He's worried about the whole being, your whole being. He, he lists them here. The spirit. The word for that, the Greek word for that is pneuma. Yeah, it's where we get our word pneumatic, right? Air. It's the transliteration of it. Uh, this is the place, it's the seat of morality. Yeah, when we're saved, we have a conscience. Before we're saved, we have a conscience. The Romans talks about the law of God written in their hearts. He talks about the heathen in Romans 1, and he says that, you know, they look out on creation and they see that God exists. He talks about the law written in their hearts. God's um, pastor uses the illustration of even in deepest, darkest Africa, they don't steal their neighbor's cow and tie it in the front yard. Okay? They all know that's wrong. Why? Because they have a conscience. But when we get saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, in our spirit. And he guides us into all truth. He's the one that informs our conscience. He's the one that guides our morality. As we get into the Word of God and we understand the things of God, and the Holy Spirit brings those things into our minds. Our spirit is renewed. The Bible talks about this in, in other language. He talks about how that we were once dead and we were quickened. Ye have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. He talks about you searing your conscience with a hot iron before you're saved. And when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes within you and He he starts to guide that that conscience. He guides your spirit. He takes over after salvation. So your spirit, wants your spirit to be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can your spirit not be held blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can we change God? No. But what's He saying? in verse number 19? Quench not the Spirit. If at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ there's an area of our life that the Holy Spirit has been pricking us about, we won't get it right, we won't get it right, we won't get it right. We can be blameless. We can be blamed at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that thing. So he's, he's saying, listen to the Spirit of God when He speaks to you. Obey. Be obedient to it. Don't quench Him. In that area, I want you to be blameless. When the Spirit convicts, obey. Be blameless in that way. In your soul, The Greek word transliterated soul is psyche. Psychologists, psychiatry, I don't know the difference. One of them gives you drugs, the other one talks to you, I'm not sure. But it has to do with your mind. God says, I want you to be blameless in your mind. This is the place of our emotions. This is the place of our natural desire and instinct. This is the old man that the Bible talks about. The sin nature that the Bible talks about. And that's why when, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we feel that inner conflict in our, in our mind, in our in our soul, inside of us. There's this inner conflict where the Spirit is saying, do this, do this, do this. And our flesh says, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. And the Bible says, You need to get your soul in line with the Holy Spirit of God and obey. This is the reason why we feel guilty about sin while still desiring to do it again. Isn't that a bizarre thing? We commit a sin. I'm not going to incriminate you. I commit a sin, and I'm convicted about it. And I think about getting it right. But at the same time, I feel like I want to do it again. Maybe it's, maybe it's, you ever heard the phrase, misery loves company? Okay, this, this is mine at work and I have to fight this one a lot. Whenever something goes wrong at work, I don't want to just internalize it, figure out the solution, and deal with it. Can somebody tell me what I want to do? I want to tell someone else. Oh man, we got this problem. Let me tell you how bad it is. It's complaining, murmuring, complaining. I think the children of Israel wandered around the wilderness for forty years for that. I don't, I don't think God likes that too much, right? And then at, at the same time, I think, oh, I need, to, I need to quit doing that, and I need to get this right, and just deal with it. But then my, my project manager comes in the door and guess what I want to do? I want to tell him too. You know, we, we feel guilty about things and, and we still desire to do them. But it's the war against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is telling us what we need to do. This is what you need to do. Do it. Obey in this area. And our soul, our natural desire is like, no, I don't want to. This feels good. We're messed up people, I'll tell you. I am, that's some people. Again, I'm incriminating you. You know, the story of of Macbeth, uh, Shakespeare uh, wrote that story. And if you know the the plot, basically he kills a king, he kills the good king, and I can't remember the king's name off the top of my head, Duncan. And he tries to frame some other guys, the servants, for it. But guess what happens? He gets found out. And so then what happens? He has to kill someone else. He has to kill someone else. And that story describes the guilt that he has in his mind, the turmoil that he has in his mind over that. What happened? He's having this inner conflict between his conscience and his soul. But he won't do what's right. And at the end, you know what happened to Macbeth? He's killed. He's overrun. And his head is... Given to the next king. Why? Because he went after his natural desire instead of doing what was right. The Holy Spirit of God needs to be obeyed when he speaks to us. We need to get our soul in line with the Spirit. And then he says, I pray your body be preserved blameless. You know, there was a philosophy that was going around in this time called Gnosticism where if you had the right philosophy in your mind, then you could do whatever you want with your body because God is a spirit. And so God isn't concerned about my body. I can do with it what I want. Well, no. He says, I pray your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved you know this physical manifestation of us is not us you know when this body dies we know that our soul is eternal and it goes one of two places so it is the least important we would say of our of our being but God is still interested in what we do with it God created us after His image. And He expects us not to mar it with sin. But how how can this be? How can this be if if I have lived a life of sin before I was saved? Or even after I'm saved, I still sin. How can I be blameless before God? Through the blood of Christ we confess our sins. For those that are, when, when we're saved, after we're saved, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're willing to repent of that thing and turn from it, for repentance is, turning away from sin, we can be blameless before God. Think of a guy like David man after God's own heart. You think of some of the terrible things that David did. Had a man murdered. Committed adultery. And yet, before God, he was blameless. Why? Because he repented. got it right. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is working through His Spirit to make you holy in every way. And then verse 24, point number three, we have, number one, the work. Point number two, the result. Point number three, the guarantee. Faithful is He that calleth you, who also will do it. We can bank on the faithfulness of God. He was faithful and enduring the cross for us. And if you remember the agony that He had in the garden where He said, if it be Thy will, let this cup pass from Me. And the agony that He went through there in the garden Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. To be separated from God. To take on our sin. To be bruised for our sin. How terrible. The worst experience that anyone could endure. Yet he was faithful in that. And he he was faithful in the hardest trial that any person could ever endure, if He was faithful to take upon Himself the form of a servant, He's faithful to sanctify us. He will convict us. He will do the work in our hearts. He doesn't give up on us. He is long-suffering. He commands us to be long-suffering because He is long-suffering. He doesn't just write us off I'm tired of that guy Bradley. He keeps committing that sin. I'm done with him. No. He's faithful to sanctify us. Romans 8, 28 says, For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. We are called to do God's will. We are called to do His purpose. Same thing. For whom He did foreknow He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. He will do the work. The question is, to what degree are we going to obey? He will do it. He is faithful. He has called us and He will do it. He will do it in this present world. Even with all the wickedness that we that we see, we see society getting crazier and crazier, it seems. It's like mankind is in trying to invent new ways to mar their image, mar the image of God. They're trying to invent new ways to rebel against God. But this passage doesn't say Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it right now or up until 2000. No. For all time, for all ages, he will do this work in our hearts. And there's just a couple of other things that he that he mentions in this passage that I thought were worth considering. Each one of these is a different paragraph so it doesn't have anything to do with what we just talked about, but he says, brethren, pray for us. We need to pray for those who serve. We need to pray for our pastor. We need to pray for uh, the missionaries that we have on the field. Why? Well they're out front. They're leading the charge. They're the head. And if the devil's going to attack anybody, the devil's not omnipresent, by the way, okay? He's going to attack anybody, he's going to attack. The person out front. Point man. We need to pray for them. God's going to do the word, God's sanctifying. We need to pray for them that they will do God's will. That they won't allow their soul to get out of sorts and take over the the control that the spirit should have. We need to pray for them that they will resist temptation, guys. This is a daily this is a daily struggle. We're all made of the same things. We need to pray for those in leadership, those in authority over us, and then we need to build the morale of our brethren. You know we don't culturally we don't uh, greet one another with a holy kiss anymore thankful for that in their culture they it was it was similar to uh I think what the French do where they kiss him on either cheek right we need to have affection one for another though we need to have one another's best interests in mind we need to be encouraging one another you know sometimes I come in here to church and it's Thursday night or usually I'm pretty Sure for Sunday morning, but Thursday night, you know, after a long day at work, you know, a little worn down, and I don't feel like saying hi to everybody. Greet the brethren. Hmm, Nathan, you need to get in line on that thing. Need to encourage one another. It's a simple thing, you know, give him a handshake. Make sure they feel welcome. Ask them about what's going on. Oh, that's not, that's not that big of a deal. No, God wrote it down. It must be a pretty big deal. Let's encourage one another in the faith. So, for us today, are you blameless before God? Is there anything in your life that you've gotten out of sorts? Is there there an area of your life where your soul has taken over the the leadership that the Spirit should have? God's going to do the work. He's going to convict you. Are you quenching the Spirit? Are you working out God's will? Are you working on these things? As As God convicts you to do these things, rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, are you being obedient to Him? If not, we're missing out on the, the entire purpose that God intended for us to fulfill. This is the whole ballgame. We don't just do God's will just because that's what he said. We do God's will so that we would be blameless before him. We will be blameless before a lost and a dying world. That's the purpose. Let's not get out of line. When we get out of line, let's make it right. Let's repent. Where are you at today, this morning? Let's pray.